For our opening scripture, I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 14 through 18. Everyone there? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. It's my privilege to uh, introduce our new pastor, Pastor Stan Kaler. I... Uh, will always have a close spot in my heart for him. He was, was instrumental. God used him to bring me into this church in 1981. He gave me Bible studies, and he got a call to another church later. So uh, he left about two weeks after we got acquainted, went through the studies, and I was baptized by him. But I, I'm glad that we have this chance to be able to uh, get together again and learn more about each other and serve the Lord together. And at this time, he'll bring us our morning's message, Caring, Change the World Longs For. And I think uh, you need a chalkboard up here, right? While they get that, I'll just uh, say, my, Jonathan, you've gotten a lot older. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I still feel like 30 years past myself. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but you folks might want to move back a little bit because I'm going to be speaking right from here. If you want to, you can stay where you're at, but I'll be speaking right from here. And uh, it's really nice. Thank you for the kind words. It's fun being back here. Uh, I was telling some of the folks out in the foyer today that that 33 miles from Willits over here is not 33 miles. It's got to be closer to 100. It takes forever to get over that road, doesn't it? Uh, I, I, I thought I was almost here, and I looked up, and there was a sign that said 11 miles. But when I got here, I don't know that I was ready for the change. Um, when I left here, that bridge was not like it is today. And that's Main Street of town, nothing like uh, what I drove through last night on my way in. And Ed and Carol, I, I didn't tell you this, but I, I missed the turnoff to my old house. They live on the same street. <laughs> and it, I just went right by it. It didn't look the same. There used to be a mountain of sand right there. And that would be my marker, but it was, uh, it was gone. They've been taking that sand away. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm glad there's some young people in the church. <laughs> we tried our best, uh, Albert and I, this morning to get the, um, the PowerPoint to work. But uh, your machine is working fine, and my machine was working fine when I left your place. But when these two got together, uh, 
my mouse won't even work anymore, so we couldn't get the PowerPoint to work, so we're going to be doing without it. And I do have chalk, and I do have that. He's getting me the lectern. The, the sh the, yeah. You have that? We got that covered from up here. Good. It's going to be exciting uh, to come back to the old place called home. We came to Fort Bragg, my wife and I, 33 years ago, I think. Yeah, 33 years ago. And then we left uh, just four years later. They called us at camp meeting and said, you're going somewhere else. And in those days, you obeyed. <laughs> in these days, you obey too. <laughs> and so when they, they called me, um, well, since we left, I, I had some pictures that I wanted to show you because uh, you would find this quite surprising that a young guy like me could have such an old, old kids in my family. My son, who was, let's see, we came here in 76. He was six years old. And uh, he's now 39 this September. Isn't it shocking? We had nothing, nothing happened to us, but he just got old. <laughs> and he's got a beautiful bride, and I've got two wonderful little girls for them. I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> little Natalie was our, their, our first grandchild. She's now just turned eight, and she is just... I'm not going to talk about it. It's just, I love those kids. <laughs> so, and then they live in Cameron Park, which is on the other side of Sacramento. We live on one side, and they live on the other side. Uh, yes, among a whole lot of things she plays. She takes karate and plays a violin and a number of other things, whatever she can get away with. Uh, is it okay to tell these kind of stories in church? She said, she said to her daddy at the last party, she said, Daddy, she was bargaining. She, they, she reads books. She reads all kinds of books, and they give so much money for every book that they read as an incentive. And so Daddy said, I'll give you X amount of dollars. And um, she says, Daddy, no, I want twice that amount. <laughs> Why do you want twice that much money? Because, Daddy, you told me I'd put half my money in the savings, so I don't get to use that money. I want... <laughs> <laughs> so in her little brain, she was thinking this all the way through, you know. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, and sh so she's our eldest, and then we have our youngest, little Noelle. And I'll tell you, if you looked into Noelle's eyes, she's got you. She's just got you. She could read all the way through you. She's just amazing. And she's just slow, and she just moves just right into your heart. Pretty, pretty something. Pretty something. Oh, um... I have my oldest daughter, who is now going to be in September. September is the time that these children chose to be born. And all three of them were born in September. And um, so uh, uh, Karina, September 5, Stan, September 15, and Tammy, the 21st of September. We just came back from visiting Karina. She's married to Bruce Bloom, who has the distinction of pastoring more than any other pastor more churches than any other pastor in this conference. Five. Up in the northeast corner of the state. And one of his churches is like mine. Not quite. I've got the distinction over him. It is four hours to Fort Bragg from where I live. He only has to go three hours. So, but th uh, five churches. And so he's, can't imagine figuring that one out. So that's what he's doing. And so 
They're up there and they have uh, Elena. She's just something else. She was in, we went up there to visit them because my daughter does musical programs in her community and that's her outreach. And she was doing a concert with a number of people in the community and we went to see it. She puts on a big show. And one of them was she and Elena. And they were up there and they were just dancing like this, you know, not dancing. No, not dancing. <laughs> they were walking like this and then they went like this and making the emotions and the expressions and stuff like that, and they're singing. And then little Elena's belting it out just like her mommy, you know, and she's only three. <laughs> and it's unfair because they had some really good performers there in that concert that did a really fine job, but little Elena got most of the applause. <laughs> and then our youngest also lives in Cameron Park. She's married to Jeremy, and... Um, Jeremy and my son are in business together. I was going to show you the pictures. I have them. They're in the computer. Uh, yeah, I don't even have them on the paper here. Or do I? No, I don't think I do. Um, but they, um, uh, they're, uh, they've got two children, uh, and they're uh, five and three. And so we've got nowhere near as many as the Ermshars have. And you're expecting maybe more. How many did you say? You have 11? Anybody can beat that? They're expecting two more. Are you still ahead of them? Yeah, well, you just better not <laughs> settle for what you got. <laughs> oh, my. Well, some people, we are just really blessed. Okay, so that's, that's the kids. My wife and I live in Roseville, California, a suburb of Sacramento, and um, our Carol's mother lives with us. She's, uh, uh, we call her Tutu. Uh, it's because we got married and went right to Hawaii, and it just changed our lives. So that's what they call grandparents, Tutu. Tutu Kani is a grandfather, and Tutu Wahini is a grandmother. So that was beautiful singing, Christina. That was really nice. Good. Okay, I want to talk a little bit today, but I'd like to ask the Lord to be with me because two things, I want to make sure that our, our lives become connected today. That's something only God can do, take two people into one, and we need to be one. The whole church needs to be one. And, um, and I don't mean just formally one. Our hearts need to kind of beat together. You know what I mean? because there's such a good thing that happens when that happens. That's something only God can do, so I want to pray about that. And uh, I don't have the PowerPoint, but you know, we're going to make do with old-fashioned stuff. And if you think this is an old-fashioned, look at the size of that chalk. <laughs> so we're going to try to do it that way. Our Lord, I thank you so very much that you love us and delight to be with us on this day. I want you to be in each one of our hearts. I want you to govern all that is said and all that is heard. And I want us to be transformed as you would have us do this day on your holy day. It's your blessing and your sanctity that we want into our lives so that we can live lives of peace and rest and power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You're going to hear a little bit about what, I, what the Lord's been doing in my life as far as how he has uh, directed me over the years of my ministry. I have now 41 years in Adventist ministry. 
Doesn't that just shock you how young I am and I did that? <laughs> 41 years. 41 years. Anyway, there's an institute in Washington, D.C. called the Caring Institute. It was founded in 1985 to honor and promote values of caring, integrity, public service, and guiding in the, uh, them is the belief that most problems can be solved if human beings truly care for one another. And I believe that's true. I believe that that's why Jesus came, to teach us how to care. I believe that every one of our doctrines, our expressions, should be expressions of how to care. I believe that all the principles in the Bible are re revolving around this, to teach us how to really love and regard one another. And that's the most important thing we can do. The founder of that institution, oh, I'll try his name, Val Halamandarius, um, he started this because of a conversation he had with Sister, our Mother Teresa, a number of years ago. And this is what Mother Teresa said, and I, it caught my attention. Can you hear me all right? She said, there is a poverty of the body in the United States much worse than the poverty uh, I, I, I read this wrong. There is a poverty of spirit in the United States much worse than the poverty of the body, body in the third world. A poverty of spirit here compared to poverty of body in the third world. And she said to Val, she said, do something about it. And that's how come he launched the Caring Institute. Um, caring is... A one-word summary, Mother Teresa said, of the golden rule that runs through all the great religions of the world. I, I, I looked at the Caring Institute, and they give awards to people every year for caring. And I picked out um, those that received uh, the award in 2007. And they were young people, the ones that I picked out. And one was Lorraine ben uh, Beter, and here's what her motto is. I wish you could see her picture. She's a beautiful young uh, blonde girl. In caring for people, you feed a part of your soul that goes unnoticed. This is a young person saying that. Didn't they give you hope that they could say that? And uh, if you ignore that part of your soul, you're not a whole person is what she says. And so she is drawing our whole attention to the fact that caring is really very important to do, to learn how to care for other people. And she visits nursing homes. That's what she does. Uh, to the nursing home, she has a little dog. Well, she has a dog, a dash hound she takes, and she just goes from bed to bed and bringing cheer to people. She also goes to the children's hospital. And uh, while she's in the children's hospital, it's so much fun to be around her, the kids just forget that they're sick. And she just brings hope and joy to them. Uh, she has had cancer herself, this young lady. And out of her own problems, she has turned that experience into the ability to care for other people. And she was the recipient of the award. There are twins, two blonde, long-haired blonde girls, and they look like twins, Molly and Jackie Singer. They're both 18. And um, they say that our goal is to encourage people to help others. If, everything, uh, if everyone gives back just a little, it would cause a rippling effect of giving. Young people are saying this. 
Doesn't that encourage your heart? Um, these twins have committed to the fight of curing diabetes because one of them has diabetes. They founded the Diabetic Angels to teach young people about the disease and get them to uh, lobby for a cure. They're getting kids to get involved to try to change our world. Boy, that's neat, isn't it? Young people, they have raised, at the time of the award, over half a million dollars in doing this. These are kids, well, young adults. Another one plays the violin. His name is Jordan Urbach. And his motto is, success is really being able to fulfill a basic human need to help others, is what he believes. And he has been using, since he was seven years old, his violin and toured uh, and um, goes to bedsides and hospitals and he has raised over $1.3 million in his passion to care for other people. Really important, a poverty of spirit. And these kids are addressing that need. I just think that's so fantastic. Well, I had to tell you another story. I love this story. I've told it before. Maybe you know this story because it was, it was national. It was back in 1983, I believe it was, when Trevor Farrell, does that ring a bell? Trevor Farrell. He's an upper middle class kid at that time. He was um, in a, living in a 16-room suburban ranch house in Philadelphia. He had a swimming pool on two acres of woods. And this boy, um, one night in 1983, the news came on and they were showing the homeless on the streets in Philadelphia. Do you remember the story now? And this boy, his eyes were just glued to the screen. He couldn't believe that people lived like that. Where is this at? In his hometown. How do they sleep? How do they eat? All of these things were going through Trevor's mind. Now what was that? What was happening inside Trevor's heart? Yeah, and it was doing what? Triggering compassion. Trevor was feeling what these homeless were feeling and wondering how could they possibly survive. It's, it was instantaneous with this boy. He didn't have a poverty of spirit, did he? Right there. It was right there. And so, do they really live like that? He thought in India for sure, but certainly not in Philadelphia. And uh, a place of brotherly love. If they live on the streets, where do they eat? How do they stay alive without a bed or a blanket? Because it's cold in Philadelphia sometimes of the years, especially in the winter. And so he said to his parents what is very normal for a kid to say, because kids oftentimes don't have a poverty of spirit, do they? So he said to the parents, can we go down there tonight? I want to go down there tonight. And his dad, mom, you know, they had 
a long day. Old folks get tired at the end of the day, you know. <laughs> He's all fired up. He wants to go out. He wants to go down on the streets, Philadelphia. He wants to go where those people were at that he saw on the TV. And he went, and he went into his bedroom, and he grabs his own pillow and his own favorite blanket. Now, you've got to remember, these kids sometimes have their blankets since as far as they can go back. You don't take that blanket away. They fall apart if you take that away. Trevor wanted to give that blanket to some homeless person and his own pillow to some homeless person that he'd never met before. And his parents just said, no, no, Trevor, you don't do it. That. You know, all the things that adults say, such silly things we adults say. Anyway, well, and they came up with their arguments and Trevor just couldn't understand it because he had been going to church every single week, you know, and goes to summer camp and in all those places they tell you that this is the way you are as a Christian. You care for people, you know. And his parents were Christians and they didn't, you know, he couldn't make this figure. He just couldn't figure it out in his brain at all. And so he was having trouble and while he was trying to sort it out, I guess the Holy Spirit was working on his parents' hearts too, Finally, Dad says, okay, we'll go. And he was hoping that would be the end of it. And so they all jumped in the car, and they went down, and sure enough, they found a homeless man sleeping on one of those grates on the street. And he was on paper, I believe, or cardboard or something like that. And they stopped, and Trevor, hardly the car had time to stop. He was outside running over to this homeless man on the street, and he said, let me see what he said. Let me see what he said. I want to read it here. Here, sir, here's a blanket for you. And he gave him his pillow, too. And the man just simply said, thank you very much. God bless you. And Trevor said, God bless you, too. That's all he said, the two of them. They drove around the block, came around again, and sure enough, the man had his head on Trevor's blanket, and, or on his pillow, and he was covered up with Trevor's blanket. And he had the smile that wasn't on the face of his parents before couldn't be taken off. They were just so thrilled to be a part of Trevor's little experience. It just warmed them up inside make them feel that way. And all the way home, did you see that smile? Smile on the man that somebody had thought and remembered him, hadn't forgotten him, and now they just all week long. And I'm not going to tell the whole story, but you know, the next day when they came home, Trevor wanted to go again. <laughs> and they just kept going, and pretty soon they made food. They took, and it just grew, and word got out, and people would come, and they would bring uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and deliver it to their homes, you know. And one lady that did that said, my father is a homeless person, and I'm just hoping if I could do this for this, that somebody else would do this for, you know, for my dad. And... More and more things, people were dropping off stuff, and pretty soon the garage was overflowing with all this kind of stuff. And eventually, word got out, and the news heard about it. It went local, it went national, and Trevor is now a was a very famous person. Um, uh, Trevor today is still doing that work. In 36 years of age, six foot two. 
He's still doing it. He's got his two little girls that uh, he walks around uh, with today. He's still giving presentations, but uh, Trevor's story, when it came out, really touched my heart. Did it touch yours too? Yeah. It's an amazing story. It's a story about caring, about being able to feel what someone else is feeling. Really quite early in my life, I started learning how to not feel what other people were feeling. And I've had to re-educate myself to learn how to feel again. It's something that is very important in Christianity. Another story that popped into my mind was a very familiar one. was about the same time, the story of Samantha Smith. Did you, do you recall this one in the early 80s? And she <clears throat> was an ordinary fifth grader. But in 1983, while watching news, she became alarmed about the talk of nuclear war. Do you remember who she is now? And uh, so she decided to do something about it. Wonderful thing about kids. They just do something about it. She wrote a letter to the Soviet leader at the Kremlin in Moscow. <laughs> and it got there. <laughs> and, and of all things, in this, in this letter, she said... Why do you want to conquer the whole world? Hmm. She urged him towards peace and to do away with bombs and missiles. And to everyone's surprise, Yuri Andropov wrote back. The two became pen pals. And he wrote to her, We want peace for ourselves and for our kids and for you, Samantha. The premier wrote to her. Not long afterwards, uh, he invited Samantha to visit him in the Soviet Union to see for herself how much the Soviet people wanted peace. And she spent two weeks. Do you remember the story now? Yeah. She spent two weeks receiving diplomatic status, red carpet treatment. Isn't that amazing? And it started an amazing cycle of events. The charm and innocence of Samantha accomplished more than all the diplomatic relations could accomplish. Doors began to open. Students from our country went to their country, their country to our country. And um, fame, that she, uh, she got such fame that she hosted a special international uh, politics session for young people produced by Disney Corporation. And Samantha was even invited to become a television actress. Lime Street. She died, however, in 18, 1985, just two years after this started. This little young lady that was destined probably for great things to turn the world around, her life came to a quick end in an in a airplane accident. And they only got the first few episodes, I think, of Lime Street started. It had Robert Wagner as a star. So... Young people can sometimes feel things that we as a little older, through life and the hardness of life, don't let ourselves feel so much. Now maybe you're different. But anyway, this is something that is, I think, really important. I was, last week, as uh, I was working on several things, and you probably were these things as well, I was struck with how much this world needs 
to learn how to care. The brutality that's been going on in Iran. The idea of people just going down the street with axes and just hacking at people. How could that happen? And how do you fight against that kind of a thing? What do you do? What's the proper response? I bet you kids can figure that one out, what the right thing is to do. And I think it would have to do with caring. Hmm. We all saw the embarrassment that, and, and, and it's been reminding us of the repeated embarrassments of political people who have lost their ability to care for one another and their marriages go in trouble, serious trouble, and then they're put right on TV and the whole world knows about it. Because two people who at one time did care stopped caring. Caring, let me refresh your mind again, caring is the ability to feel what someone else is feeling and responding to that need. That's what it is. And we have to be able, if we really do care, we have to be able to be willing to feel that pain and all of it. As a pastor, right now, I've got three couples that are seeing me for, for counseling. They just, their marriages are in serious trouble. And these are marriages that should not be in serious trouble. And, and if I'm going to be of any help to them, I have got to be able to feel their pain, both parties' pain, Amen. and through that, be able to help them to find their own way of feeling and then find their own way out. Uh, if we don't feel what other people feel, what effect can we have on people? Can we really have any positive effect? Hmm. I just came back from a, um, a um, convention. It's the second time I went to this convention in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, three years ago, when I first went, I had just got, it was a God thing. I was on the internet, I was taking another conference in, 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 um, in, in Colorado, and I went across the street to another hotel because they had internet access and I needed to check some things out, and I found out about this conference. I said to my wife, we're going to this conference, just right on the spot. It was the uh, Conference on Children's Spirituality, and that's what now my professional life is absorbed in. Um, because I believe that the only way you can change the world is through children. Amen. Children are the only thing that has the power to change the world. Jesus held up a child, didn't he? <laughs> you know. So, anyway. I just came from the second conference. And before I went, I was just a little bit ill at ease about going to Chicago. You know why? Because have you been hearing in the news? Drive-by shootings. More deaths than at any time. It takes you back to almost the gangster era. You know. And who's doing the killing? Young people are randomly killing other young people. And, and, and you know, did you know that the United Nations now regularly tracks a, a thing called child soldiers? These are young people that are being um, uh, captured and brought. I mean, they're young. They could hardly hold these huge guns that they are issued. And they go around and they just randomly kill people. It is a horrible world. 
50,000 child soldiers on the planet. And it just continues. Our world needs much more caring. We've got to somehow turn this thing around. I think about Wall Street. <laughs> what happened there on the caring issue? I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And, and you know, how many people have lost their retirement and so much of all that they'd worked for because people just didn't feel? Hmm. The abuse of the most vulnerable people in society continues on. Uh, churches have been unable to care. And I tell you, I think that's the reason why people don't come to church anymore. I think if they felt like when they came to the church that they would be loved like every human being longs to be loved. Every human being. And how, what kind of love is that? Unconditional. That is extremely important. And if somehow, if churches can learn how to be caring and learn how to love, they would be flocking, uh, they would be flooded with people and what would happen with those people, they would be so open, not closed, they would be open to hear almost anything from us simply because they're loved. That opens a heart instead of closing it. Just opens it wide open. But there's been so much hardness in this world that hearts are closed pretty tight. And the only thing I believe that can open those things up, you know when your heart is closed tight, your frontal lobe doesn't work anymore. It's not going to open up. You know what opens the frontal lobe? All the reasoning. You know, we try, to, we try to teach logic and we try to teach truth and things like that. These are very important, but the, it's closed. Only the heart can make the frontal lobe work, I think. To be able to take a risk, to be able to be willing to change, <coughs> that's something that the heart prepares the frontal lobe for. Really important to think about that. And so, this inability to love, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you all know about this. I'm going to just read just a few verses of this one. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. And when your focus is on yourself, just the way we're made, folks, we can't even hear what other people are feeling. We can't feel it. And so Christians have got to really take a serious look at our Lord and Savior who didn't think about himself and he cast that all aside. He came down to this planet called Earth and he came down so completely and thoroughly that he even took on our own flesh to make sure that he would feel what we feel. So that when we would be totally empty and totally at our end, we would always know that there's at least somebody that understands. And we could pray to him. And we would know that he would understand and he would listen. And our hearts would be open and we could be changed. Totally changed. That's the model that we have. It's the model of Jesus himself. When he came to this world, the world was totally divided in class distinctions. Women were treated as second-class citizens. Children had absolutely no status. They could be cast out, just given up, sold to a life of prostitution or a life of slavery. Two-thirds of the world were slaves when Jesus was here. Two-thirds of them. 
And he came and modeled something so remarkably different. You know the reason why those crowds were there? Oh, I think there was a number of people that were hoping they'd see a miracle. <laughs> and he was, the, he was a local sensation, obviously. But all that happened is when he opened his mouth and started to talk, and when he looked into their eyes, you know what? They knew that he loved them. And then they were, they were caught. Because there just isn't that many people that feel that nowadays, feel that kind of love. And that's what parents must give to their children. But we're so busy dealing with our stuff because somebody didn't love us that way. You know, it's got to stop. Somewhere, it's got to stop. Anyway, in the chapter that John read there in John chapter 3, there are so many important things there. He that loveth not his brethren abideth in death. John said. Now, who was John? He was the guy, the guy that sat there right next to Jesus, and when they reclined at the table, John's head was resting on Jesus, almost on his heart. John allowed himself to be just drawn all the way into Jesus. And because of that, you know, you, you hear this amazing story just popped into my mind. It's a legend that was passed on down about John when he went to his church district in Asia Minor. He was uh, introduced to this young boy who was uh, a criminal, actually. Had, well, no, I'm going to mess up the story because it's going to come out of a memory that's flawed. But I think he, 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 he fell in love with this young man, brought him into the Lord, brought him into the church. The man left the church, but he told, before he left the church, he told the elder to watch after this boy. And John went on in his itinerant ministry, and what, years later when he came back, he discovered this man had left the church, he'd gone out and become involved with the gangs. And old John, teetering John, old Apostle John, went out after this man, went right into the gangs, and he reached out to this boy again. And the boy couldn't resist John. Why? Why couldn't he resist him? Here was the only man that ever had time for him, that ever cared about what was going on inside of his heart. And even though he is now doing horrendous things, terrible things, when John walked in front of this boy, and he, see, the boy, he knew his heart was just like clay. No matter how terrible a life he was, he lived, he couldn't resist. He gave up and came back to the Lord. That's the way the disciples were because they had lived with someone who had taught them how to love. When churches do that, they will be filled. They've got not only to do that, they've got to do it with people. can't just theorize about it. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to take risks. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed. And in truth, John says, let us love one another. Well, I want to tell you in closing here what medical science has been teaching us about this thing called caring. In 1992, they discovered something called mirror neurons. You medical people will be aware of those kind of things. <clears throat> These mirror neurons are specialized neurons that have the unique ability of enabling empathy, the ability to feel what other people are feeling. 
the ability to grasp the mind of others by direct simulation. They just simply take you right there and you can see exactly what this other person feels, exactly what this other person's, and that becomes written directly in you. It's a direct link. <laughs> see? So it's pretty astounding. In other words, in the presence of people, we have the ability to have a direct hookup through these neurons. That they can come into us completely and we can go into them completely. It's a shorthand. It is amazing. Who created us? And he created mirror neurons. Science didn't create them. They just discovered them, that they were there. This is something called feeling. And it's something that children know instantaneously. They can look into somebody, and that's how come they can pick up the story, even though they don't even know what the words are all about. They just read it in the expressions, you know, and they can make it all come together, and they understand through the help of mirror neurons. It just has this ability. God has built into our physiology compassion the ability to do this. All of us have those things in us. Mapping in our brains identical information from what is going on in the brains of others that we are observing. So Jesus made us this way so that we can be caring. Isn't that fabulous? We must be caring. Neural bridges between people, it all operates underneath our awareness. It just happens automatically. You make decisions within a millisecond of whether, first time you meet somebody, whether or not this person is somebody you're going to like or not. And if you're going to like them, you're open. And if you're not going to like them, you're closed. Just like that. You did it when you were a kid, and you still do it today. That's what happens. It's the way we are. All our biological systems regulate signals emerging from within the body. But the brain stays constantly in touch with others out there. In fact, those who are studying the brain, you know, the 1990s was a decade of the brain. Amazing research still going on. Continually, the brain continually attunes itself to people outside. This seems to be what its main purpose is. Repeated experiences with others actually sculpt the architecture of our own brain. What actually we, how we live with others builds the architecture in our brain, becomes a signature of who we are. Relationships cannot be considered apart from others. They affect how we actually, who we are, how we're designed through our brain. Everybody following here? We're talking about relationships. So relationships, God designed us for relationships. We have, to, we have to fight against the anatomy, <laughs> fight against the way the Creator designed us to be, to be uncaring. He made it easy for us. Brain mirroring happens within a millisecond, as I said, before cognitive thought, reason can ever become engaged. We've already made up our minds. The default activity of the brain all seems to be there. Now think about this. How does that play out in evangelism? The first thing we must do is connect with this person. They must discover that we care about them, that we like them, and even love them. 
And when, and you know, a lot of people have been damaged. They're going to challenge that because they, they've been conned before. And they're going to challenge our love to see if it's really true. And when they are finally, like the young boy that John went after, when they finally are convinced that we really do love them, this is what's going to happen to that brain of theirs. It's going to open up completely and it'll latch on to us. And just like a child, a parent can tell that child just about anything and that child will believe it if it's in that kind of relationship. People will do that. Our problem in evangelism is not getting the information out. Our problem is not loving. If we love, if we love, they will come. If we love, they will hear. If we love, they will be changed. Our doctrines are not, they're not adverse to rational thought. In fact, if we can present them the right way, nobody can reject them, you know. And so the key is, it's the delivery system. It's the way I present myself. It's the way I am with people. Can they trust me? Do I really care? Can I understand them? Do I know them? And these are things that Jesus, just an amazing, you know when he was with people, they knew that he knew them. Just looking at their eyes, Jesus and them, and them with Jesus, what went on between the eyes of the two, they just melded. You know that Star Trek term? <laughs> they just knew. They knew he knew. And he knew they knew. Did I say that right? You know, and that's, that's it. And this is what the world is, I think, longing for. Our entire being joining that of another. To resonate together, feeling their feelings through our own feelings. Words no longer are as necessary, but they only help us to clarify things and also to inform this part up here, the frontal lobe. And most of it takes place down, down in the heart of the brain, the amygdala, different places like that. There's such thing as spindle cells. These are very large cells. And it's because of them that things can transmit so fast. These are very fast messages. And so decisions are made communicating relational things, because that's the main activity of the brain. Uh, relational things outbeat. I mean, these are the fast racehorses. <laughs> they get to the goal before cognitive thought can ever get started. And if they have already taken their due, their, their, if they're already at the end gate, that means the decision's already been made here whether we're open or closed to information. We've got to go to the heart. That opens the door, and then people can make decisions. So it's really very important. That's why he told his people, love one another. Really important. That's why he made us with the ability to love one another. Ah, oh, what do I want to say? It's time to end. Think of the possibilities. Empathy, when it exists, maximizes everybody's potential. What happens when people are together, they get into kind of a synchrony, you know, and they kind of almost match each other. And they've, they've tested this in laboratories. When people are in synchrony, when two people are together, you can watch them, they take their steps exactly the same. Their heartbeat starts matching. Their breathing starts matching. They totally get synchronized. 
And when we really get together with somebody, then no longer is there the fear and uh, things like uncertainty and caution that always is trying to interrupt things. They just let them go into this. And I tell you, the neat thing about my wife and I, I wish she could be here today. She'd like to be here. but We are finally in synchrony. And we can talk just about anything nowadays. And when we talk, things just are let loose and there's so much stuff generalized. You heard about this term called the flow? That's like the basketball players, you know, when everything goes right on the court and nobody can understand why. Everybody's making hoops and everybody's in the right place at the right time. This is what happens when empathy comes into a church. Magic starts happening. Miracles start taking place. I think the last time I was in this church, magic was happening and miracles took place. And I can't remember how many people were baptized that night. We were all just absolutely amazed. Something took over. And that, Jesus said to his father in his high priestly prayer, let them be one even as we are one. That's what we need. The world doesn't have this. It cannot model this. Satan cannot make this happen. This stands out so different from everything else. And if we can do this, our children will prosper. All of the friends that we have, the community, they will say, they'll never forget you if you stopped and listened to them. And if you talk to them. And if you care about them. You know, the world will be a changed place. And our hearts will be happier. Because we are connected. And empathy will take place. I just am so excited about the potentials here. And um, I'm so happy that our God is still alive. <laughs> and he does amazing stuff. And I know that we are few in number. But you know what? The disciples were less than this. And, um, and remember, they had a hard life too. <laughs> but they changed the world. They literally changed the world. Thank you, Father, for being with us this morning. Thank you for all that you have done in this church over the years and you've held us together. Thank you for the blessings. In remembering the way that you have made us and the call and the modeling that you did yourself, showing us that this really has to be first and foremost in everything we do. This is not a cheap love. This is a genuine, sincere caring that's modeled after yours, that changes hearts and makes the hearts open for the word, which gives freedom. Help us to find our own unique ways, each one, to become more caring. And first of all, to allow ourselves to be cared for by you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.